please take out your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews, the fourth chapter. So vital, so crucial that you take this sermon this morning and you check out every reference. Hebrews chapter 4. We know, capital K-N-O-W, underline, embolden, we know that Jesus Christ can sympathize with our struggles because he was tempted in all things as we are. Hebrews chapter 4 verses 14 through 16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us, therefore, because of everything I've just read, because of who Jesus is, because he can sympathize, because he understands our weaknesses, let us, therefore, for that reason, come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. Find grace to help in our time of need. Secondly, if you'll back up with me to Hebrews 2, we know, K-N-O-W capitalized, underlined, and bolded, we know that Jesus Christ was made like his brethren in all things, suffering and being tempted going through death as we must so that he could truly understand what we go through so that he could truly help us when we do. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18 says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, or for that reason, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. We know this stuff. Beautiful stuff. We sing songs about how Jesus knows and Jesus cares. We sing songs about how our Heavenly Father understands, and we understand and we see 
these verses. And yet, when cancer, Alzheimer's, death, desertion, abandonment, or some other deadly peril strikes us, when some other overwhelming thing hits us in our families and all of those sorts of things, you know, we still at times are tempted to wonder, despite all that we know, where's God? Where's God? We're tempted to wonder, even though we know, we're tempted to wonder, does God really understand? Is he really and truly right here with me right now? If God is, then why am I going through this? I want you to know, number one this morning, that if you've ever asked those sorts of questions, if you've ever been in that place where you've asked those sorts of questions or even been tempted to ask those sorts of questions, I want you to know that you are not alone. You're in pretty good company. In fact, you're in very good company. You are not the first faithful servant of God to ask exactly those sorts of questions. For example, and we're going to cite several, turn to me this morning in your Bibles to Judges, the sixth chapter, the book of Judges that we're studying through in our Tuesday morning Bible class. And keep in mind, the whole point of these examples is this, you are not the first faithful servant of God who has struggled and been tempted to or even come right out and asked those sorts of questions. In Judges chapter 6, beginning at verse 11, God's people have been terribly afflicted here by the Philistines, and, and Gideon is in, a, is in a bad way, and he's trying to salvage just a little, little bit of food. And it says in verse 11, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat, threshed wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. The Midianites had come through and they had basically taken all the food and, and decimated the land and, and Gideon's trying to get the least little bit he can and keep it hidden from them. They are so oppressed. God's people are hungry. And the angel of God appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. You know what I do if I'm Gideon? Who's he talking to? He can't be talking to me. I'm sitting here in this paltry little mess and look what I'm doing. Almighty man of valor, the Lord is with you. And Gideon, bless his heart, comes out and says probably the same thing I'd say in that situation. Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Look, you've got to be kidding me. God's with us? Do you see our circumstances? Do you see... If, if God is with us, how could this have even happened? 
And, and where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. Gideon goes so far as to say, not only do I not see God here, God has forsaken us. God's left us. We're in a God-forsaken place, if I may paraphrase Gideon. And he has delivered us into the hand of the Midianites. Gideon wondered where God was, wondered what God was doing, thought God had left him. Had God left his people? No. Turn to me to Psalm 6. David, the man after God's own heart, David struggled at times to understand in the midst of his worst times, where was God? In Psalm 6, Listen to David's anguish. He says in verses 1 through 3, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me, Psalm 6, verse 1, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. David cries out to God and he says, I am weak, God. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. He said, I, my, my trouble and my anguish run so deep, it's in my bones. Doesn't get much deeper than that, folks. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O oh Lord, how long? Lord, how long am I going to stay in this condition? What, what are you doing? What are you going to do, Lord? Oh, Lord, I need help. I'm weak. Where are you? <clears throat> he says in verse 6, I'm weary with my groaning. He said, I've grown so much. He said, I'm just weary of it. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. David said, I am crying my eyes out over this God. Where are you? What are you doing? Did God love David? Oh, yeah. Does God love us? Even when we fail to understand? Oh, yeah. Don't ever lose sight of that. He says in verse 7, my eye wastes away because of grief. I'm, I'm, I'm soaking my couch with tears. My bed's floating. My eyes, he, say, grow, he says, my eye wastes away because of grief. Verse 7, it grows old because of all my enemies. David struggled to answer those questions. Does God really understand? Is he really here? Where is he? Why is this happening to me? Gideon and David were not the only ones. And we're not going to cite everyone you could possibly go to in the Bible, but I want you to see these great <laughs> heroes of the faith. They struggled with those same questions. They were human too. Turn to me in your Bibles to 1 Kings 19. You know, sometimes we come off a, a mighty, mighty victory. Things are going good, and, and we have this great advance for the kingdom, or we do something that, that is just... Thank God. I mean, God caused it, but we have this great victory, and, and this is the very thing that had happened in 1 Kings 18. Elijah had beaten all these prophets on Mount Carmel and put them to death, and it was a great day for God's people, and things were going good, and it was this mighty victory. Chapter 19 of 1 Kings, verses 1 and following. Ahab, that is the king, told Jezebel, that is, what, that is his wife, all that Elijah had done, all those great things that had happened. 
Also, how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. The only thing is, Ahab and Jezebel, of course, they didn't think it was all that great because these were their prophets and they were evil people. But anyway, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. She said, 24 hours, you're going to die just like they did. I'm taking you out. When he saw that, he rose and he ran for his life. Did you know that phrase was in the Bible? He ran for his life. There it is, New King James Version. He ran for his life. He's scared to death. He knows that she has the power and the resources to do exactly what she said. He is scared to death. He is running for his literal life. Yesterday's victory, just a memory. Today's terror is very real. He ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. He said, Lord, it's enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my father. He said, God, I can't take this anymore. I cannot do this anymore. Take my life. Just, just, just end it for me right here, God. Then as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Isn't God good? He said, God, just, just take my life. I, I, I'm useless. I can't, I can't do this. God sends him a messenger and says, Arise. Eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose, and he ate and drank. He went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave, spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? God says to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's running for his life, and he's all frantic and doesn't know what's going on. And Look at what he says. God comes to him and says, What are you doing? So Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. He said, Lord, I've served, I've done all I know how to do. For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. He said, it's over, it's done. Look, I'm the only one left. This terrible thing has happened, just, it's over, God. Can we read the rest of the chapter? We see that God basically says to him, it's not over by a long shot. I've still got a job for you to do. Get up and go do it, and I'll take care of it. These great men of God struggled to understand why things happened in their life like they did. They struggled to answer the question, what's going on? Is there any hope for the future? It's over. They struggled, nor were they alone. Turn to me to the book of Habakkuk. May take you a moment to find that one. It's not one that we turn to a lot, but Habakkuk chapter one. Habakkuk chapter one. Habakkuk lived in a time, a very chaotic and tumultuous time. Habakkuk lived in a time of great cultural chaos, not necessarily unlike the cultural chaos that we face today in our world. Incredible injustice and spiritual wickedness. All three of those were present 
for Habakkuk. And look what he wrote in the first four verses. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Habakkuk is wearying himself. He's wondering where God is and why God doesn't do something. He says, even when I cry out to you violence, you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There's strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless. The injustice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. And as we look at that, we might see reflections of our own culture. And like we do some days when we watch the news and we see and hear some of the things that are going on, we think, God, where are you? Habakkuk did the same thing. And finally, from the New Testament, if you turn to me to 2 Corinthians, as I said, if you've ever struggled with the questions, you're not alone. Many great men of God struggled to understand where they were in life. Was God with them? What was God doing? And if God is with us, why has this happened? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, very familiar passage, Paul talking about his thorn in the flesh. But he says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Have you ever prayed to God? repeatedly for something to change. Have you? Most of us have, right? We, 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 we've got a situation that is heartbreaking or that is overwhelming or that seems terribly dark and disastrous. We see this thing that is hindering us, that is crippling us, that is making us, as I read about this thorn in the flesh in my mind, I get that picture. You remember the kid's fairy tale story of the lion with a thorn in his paw that was just aggravating the daylights out of him every time he turned around? It affected everything he did. It affected everything. And as I think of Paul, I think Paul's got this aggravating personal thing going on. It's just affecting everything. It's like when you have a toothache and it aches from the top of your head to the tip of your toe. You know what I'm talking about, right? Toothache, whole body, right? Well, he's got this thorn in the flesh. He's got this aggravation that he's trying to, he's praying, God, take this. Do something with it. But God's answer is pretty different from what Paul expected at least at first. Verse 9, and God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. You know what that phrase means, my strength is made perfect in weakness? What it means is this. When we are at our weakest point is when we tend to lead on God the hardest. And when we are at our weakest, when we are the most aggravated, when we are the most overwhelmed, when we are in those darkest places is when we tend to turn to God more often. Paul realizes that. God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's when, that's when my full power comes forth, because that's when you're going to rely on my full power. So Paul says, now I get it. Paul stopped wondering where God was then and what he was doing. He says, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. I'll take pleasure in all of these things. At first, he didn't understand why he was having to deal with this aggravating thing. But then God made it clear that by leaning on him, 
That is the reason he would allow Paul to keep that thorn in the flesh so Paul would keep leaning on him. Even Jesus Christ himself cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus understands that. Now, we understand that Jesus was a special and unique case. We understand that God did not forsake him forever. We understand that God could not look on him because Jesus took our sins upon him. But we also understand that God did not forsake or abandon him long term because the Bible tells us that God did not abandon his soul to Hades, but raised him up instead in Acts chapter 2. But folks, in answer to the question, where's God when the pain strikes? Where's God when peril hits? Where's God in this life and death situation? Where is God? When I am going through the worst time of my life, the answer to that question, in answer to that question, you know, although we often recite Hebrews 2 and 4 like I did at the beginning of this message, and we say, you know, that's got a lot to do with our understanding that Christ is there when our hearts are broken, when our faith is shaken, when our lives are threatened, and that's all true. There's an Old Testament prophecy about Christ that I think we also need to throw in there with Hebrews 2 and 4. That's right out of Isaiah 53, and it's one verse. I want you to look with me in Isaiah 53. It's got a lot to do with where God is when my life is coming apart at the seams. Where is God when I hurt? That one verse that has so much to do with this that needs to be put in there with Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 4 that we read, that one verse is Isaiah 53. In verse 3, love to hear those Bibles turn. <coughs> Isaiah 53 in verse 3, prophecy about the Christ and what he would be. We're going to spend some time examining this. It says, he is despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The word despised here means to hold in contempt. It means to disdain. It means to be considered vile or worthless. It means to exclude or abandon because you so hate this person or thing. That's what the Hebrew word means. And you know what that means in that verse? That means that Jesus Christ understands because he has been there himself when people don't want anything to do with you because you're a Christian. They despised him. He knows what it's like to be hated, rejected, reviled, excluded, abandoned, and forsaken for simply upholding and defending and carrying out the will of God. Jesus speaks to that in the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6, 22 through 26. The word rejected, Isaiah 53, 3, is actually translated as forsaken in the New American Standard Version, means the same thing. 
But the line I really want for us to look at is, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Jesus, how many of you remember, there's an old country western song, I'm no stranger to the rain. How many of you remember that song, right? Okay. Jesus was no stranger to pain, sorrow, hurt, grief. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was no stranger to it. And it's interesting, this Hebrew word here for grief, if you look it up in a Hebrew dictionary, it's going to say disease, affliction, sadness, calamity, and evil. Think about that. We just read over this, and I'll, I'll, for those of you taking notes, I'll come back to those in just a minute. But we read over that where it says, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But the Hebrew word means he was acquainted with disease. He knew what it was like to watch somebody that, that he loved waste away because of disease. He was acquainted with grief. He was acquainted with disease. He was acquainted with word number two that that word grief, it's a very broad umbrella word in the original Hebrew. It also means affliction. He was acquainted with affliction. He knew how affliction looked on people. He knew when they were afflicted and hurting and, and physically ailing. He knew. That Hebrew word also means term number three, sadness. Jesus was acquainted with sadness. Jesus knew what it was like to be sad. We don't think of him like that much, do we? But Jesus was acquainted with, familiar with, sadness. He was acquainted with word number four, calamity. He was acquainted with evil. He never sinned and he never did anything evil, but he knew what evil looked like and he knew how evil hurt people. And you know, I want you to think about this. <clears throat> Have you ever stopped to consider that from the moment that Jesus Christ came into the world as a baby, that there was pain and affliction and death and suffering and struggle all around his immediate persona, if you will? Stop and think about this. If we don't think he was acquainted with all these things, if we don't think Jesus can identify with when a loved one is, is hurting or those sorts of things, listen to this list. Consider, and I'm just going to hit boom, 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 okay? From the moment he came into the world as a baby, evil, pain, suffering, and affliction were all around him. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Jesus comes into the world. What does Herod do? Has all those little baby boys in Bethlehem killed, doesn't he? Jesus knew that was going to happen. It was prophesied. There was pain and suffering all around him. His own human parents had to run for their lives under the cover of darkness to a foreign land, according to Matthew 2, verses 13 through 15. Angel comes to him and says, Joseph, take your family and flee to Egypt. Jesus knew what it was like when that situation happened. Jesus knew the awful pain and suffering of death when it came to his own beloved family members. Somewhere along the line, according to, now the Bible doesn't come around and say this in book, chapter, and verse, black and white, but somewhere along the line, Joseph, Mary's husband, everybody believes died when Jesus was at least a youth, and youth I'm talking teenager, somewhere in there, because after uh, Jesus in his childhood, we never see Joseph heard from again. So most people believe Joseph passed away, okay? We just don't see him when Jesus becomes an adult, anywhere in the scriptures. So most likely Jesus experienced the pain of the man that was his human dad, if you will. Jesus 
experienced the pain of his near kinsman, John the Baptist, being put to death for doing the right thing. And when John the Baptist died, Matthew 13 and verse 15, it tells us that Jesus went away to a quiet place. I'm sorry, Matthew 14, verse 13. Matthew 14, 13. Jesus went away to a quiet place to try to deal with the death of his friend. Jesus knew what that was like. After his baptism and temptation, he returned to his hometown of Nazareth where he'd been raised and he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. His own hometown, his own townspeople tried to throw him off a cliff. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. Not only did his own people reject him, his own hometown, but even his own brothers didn't believe in him. John chapter 7 and verse 5, not in the beginning. His own family, his own brothers, they, they wouldn't believe in him. Some of you have felt the pain and sting of becoming a Christian and your own family members rejected. Jesus was there. He knows, he understands he was there. He gets it. He also understands what it's like when your best friends in all the world when you have rescued them and you have saved their lives time and again, when you need them the most, they're nowhere to be found. Because that's exactly what happened with his 12 best friends in all the world, or his 11 at this point. Matthew 26, 56. Is all of them abandoned him. They forsook him. Jesus knows what it's like when those people you work with all your life and do so much with, all of a sudden they ain't there when you need them. Jesus knows. Because he's been there, he understands. And because he understands, he hurts with you. He walks through it with you. He's not going to leave you. He promised. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you in no circumstances. I have been there. I have overcome all of that death of family, death of all of these things. I've overcome them. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God now, and he's interceding for us. He's our high priest. We can go to him for help when we need it to his throne of grace and mercy. He knows, and he said, I will never leave you to face that by yourself. Because of who he is and where he is now, because of what he has been through and overcome, we need to understand when we leave this place this day and never forget ever again and never, never have any doubts ever again that when we walk through those things, Jesus goes with us. We may be tempted to ask where he is, but it's only a temptation because he both has and exercises the ultimate power to pull us through the worst of the fire, unsinged, unscathed, and not even smell into the smoke. Is that what he did in Daniel 3? They didn't even smell of the smoke, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, after they'd walked through the fire with the Son of God. There are many beautiful passages that relate and reinforce this. My favorite is Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8. Romans 8 and verse 28. 
You remember how we started this sermon? We know, K-N-O-W, underline, capitalize, embolden, and we know. There's no doubt about it. We don't have to wonder about it. We don't have to even worry ourselves or fret or think about it because we know that all things, good and bad, work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who'll bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who's the one that condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. That's you and me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, famine, famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Is there any trouble or tribulation? Is there any distress or anxiety or worry? Is there any persecution or any hunger or any peril that we can go through that can separate us and carve us out of God's hand if we don't want to go. And his answer in the last two verses is absolutely not. There isn't anything. He says, no. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. That's what he says. For I am persuaded that neither death, not mine or, or, or anybody else's I love, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What's he telling you? He said, Jesus is right there with you in all these things. The only way he's not is if you walk away from him. But he will not leave you to face that by yourself. Speaking of God causing all things to work together for good and making us more than conquerors, no matter what life throws at us. In answer to the question, where is God, when I heard, I want to read to you, and it's worth the time to read it, from the Gospel Advocate, September of 2018. This was just last fall. September 2018, an excellent issue of the Gospel Advocate, and within it, there's an article by Alan Webster, who's written most of our tracks out here on the wall from house to house. And the question is, where was God when disaster struck? I'm going to read to you only the first and the last part of this. Listen to what he says. On March the 19th, 2018, at 8.23 p.m., an EF3 tornado hit Jacksonville, Alabama, with winds up to 150 miles an hour. Most of you will probably remember this. It was a year ago in March. By the time it ended at 9.10 p.m., it had traveled 34 miles, was up to 2,000 yards wide. The north side of the city of Jacksonville looked like a war zone. No picture or video did justice to the destruction one felt while standing amid the aftermath the next morning. Among the 355 buildings damaged or destroyed were those on the campus of Jacksonville State University and the four belonging to the Jacksonville Church of Christ. The folks that put house to house out, that do such a wonderful, beautiful job with that work, most of their facilities were destroyed. More than a dozen families in the church sustained damage to their houses. 
Two were displaced for months and one home was destroyed. Remarkably, there were only four injuries and no fatalities. Thankfully, it came on a Monday night and not on a Sunday morning. And it was spring break, so most students and faculty were away. One might wonder, why did God allow this to happen to his people? Goes right along with our sermon. Why the distraction from his work? Why delay or discourage his workers? Why cost his kingdom this money? I remember talking to Brother Webster a few months after this and asking him a question. He said, well, he was working out of some office somewhere, but it wasn't the facility because they were devastated in this tornado. He writes, God's people have never been exempted from disaster. God has always allowed his people to suffer. Noah suffered a flood, Joseph suffered a famine, Moses suffered thirst, Job suffered a storm, David suffered persecution, Jeremiah was left to die in the mud, John the Baptist was beheaded, Jesus suffered the cross, Paul suffered shipwrecks, John was exiled on Patmos. We get the picture, right? Then he says this, if God's people were protected from disaster, many would become Christians for the wrong motives. But that doesn't mean God doesn't walk through it with us, because he absolutely does. Let me read for you his concluding three paragraphs. He says, the Jacksonville Church of Christ was established in 1918. So we had many things on the agenda to celebrate our 100th year of service. Rebuilding from a tornado was not one of them. Still, more good has likely already come from the storm than the suffering that it caused. Do you remember Romans 8.28? The name of the church is better known in the community than before. We have been able to help more than 300 families in Jacksonville more than the last decade combined. Our members have joined in working in greater numbers than any year in recent memory. Isn't it amazing how a disaster pulls a church together? You know, in the first century, it's one of the reasons they grew, because they were so persecuted, they pulled together. You know, if something devastating like that strikes, it makes the church, isn't it sad that we have to wait for something like that to make the church pull together more than it ever has? Continuing on. He says, we are more thankful for what we have than we were before. It would do that, wouldn't it? We have prayed more fervently. We have grown closer. God has been glorified. On a personal level, March 19th is my wife's birthday. She was in the church building with our daughters when the tornado hit. Buildings on both sides of the one they were in were destroyed. The one they were in was left standing. They were unharmed. Where was God when disaster struck? Right where we needed God to be. I want to leave you with two references this morning. And I hope they bring great peace and comfort and consolation to you. If you are somebody who is struggling to find rest and peace, if you're somebody whom the diagnosis is life and death, if you're somebody with that dark cloud hanging over you, if you're somebody who's just looking for rest and peace and strength, I want to leave two passages with you this morning and then we'll close. Please open your Bibles. Please look them up. Please look at what God is trying to tell you. The first one is 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Highlight it. If you write in your Bible, there's so much 
in this series of verses. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. We often say God is love, and he is. But God is something else. God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. Not just some of it, not just the easy stuff, not just the stuff we were expecting, not 75% of it comforts us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. One of the beautiful things God will do is to bring you through something and comfort you so that down the road, when somebody else is going through it and they're ready to give up like Elijah, you can look them square in the eye and say, let me tell you what, I was there and my God brought me through and I want to share my God with you. We are comforted in our affliction that we might comfort others. For as the sufferings, verse 5, of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Look at verse 8. We do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure. Have you ever felt burdened beyond measure? Has life just been crushing? Ever been there? Who's been there? Boy, you guys really had it easy over time. Let's try it again. How many of you have been there? That's a little better. Paul says we were there. He said, we were so burdened. We, life was so crushing. We were burdened beyond measure. He said, I can't even tell you how burdened we were. <laughs> and for Paul, who uses really long sentences and really wrote a lot, for him to say, I don't have the words to describe this, that was pretty heavy duty. Above strength. He said, we didn't have the strength to deal with it. We, we were out of strength. Like Elijah, they just couldn't cope. He said, it was so bad we despaired even of life. We knew we were dead. It was over. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Why, Paul? What was God trying to say? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises, that he says the reason we went through all of that and God allowed us to was so that we would learn to trust God more than ourselves. <coughs> who delivered us from so great a death and does deliver us. He said God pulled us through it, and God will continue to pull us through all such things. The second text before we close this morning I want to leave you with is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. I'm going to be reading it from the English Standard Version. It is a strictly literal translation like the King James, the New King James, and the New American Standard. But it's worded just slightly differently, and I, I love the way it's worded in the ESV. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 through 11, says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. God has a time he's going to lift you up, and God's got it planned. Now, God's timing and our timing are often different. I gave up when I became a preacher. I started out and had one of those blotters on my desk where I could write appointments. It didn't take me too long to kind of use it just as a pad to write on because God's appointment calendar and mine were so different that most days it just didn't work. God has a proper time. At his proper time, he may exalt you, casting all, not just some of them, 
Not just the big things, not just 75%, not just the little things, not just the things you think he can deal with when he's got a moment. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Do you see the contrast? Give God everything and all your anxieties and cast them on him because he cares for you. All the devil's looking to do is chew you up. Don't miss the contrast. Then it goes on to say, resist the devil firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Do not think that you are all alone. In whatever struggle you have, there are other people going through the same thing. Gain strength from them as well. And then, the reason I like the ESV so much, in their particular wording, it says, and after you have suffered a little while, remember this life is but a vapor, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, notice you only suffer a little while, but heaven is eternal, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself. And I, and I love the way the ESV does that. Will himself. God personally. Which is the implication anyway. But the ESV says he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. This morning, are you in Christ? Have you answered the redeeming call by obeying the gospel for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you been put into Christ where all those blessings are? Most of you in this room have. So here's the ultimate question. And go ahead and close your Bibles because I want your full attention. Okay, hard to tell with electronic Bibles, right? But anyway, most of you in this room have already been placed in Christ. Well, let me ask you this. If the struggle has been difficult, if life has gotten overwhelming, if you need that restoration, that confirmation, that strength and comfort, where it says he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If you need that, if you need that restoration and confirmation and strength and comfort that only God can give, God wants to. God wants to. And we want to pray for you to have that peace. Don't we, church? If we got somebody hurting here this morning, do we want them to have that strength and peace again? Yes or no? And we'll pray for them hard, right? If you're sitting here this morning, God wants to restore you, redeem you, strengthen you, comfort you, give you that peace. God does not want you to leave this building. God does not want you to start life tomorrow morning at school or work or wherever you are with life crushing you. He wants to help. All you got to do is ask. If you need the prayers of the church or to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, don't white-knuckle the pew in front of you. Come and let us pray for you. Do whatever we need to as we stand and sing.